Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. It's been three weeks since our last episode, and only once or twice in the past four and a half years have we had a delay that long uh, between episodes. Uh, We've been rather proud of the fact that every two weeks we crank out a new podcast. Two of the four of us have recently changed jobs, uh, and so we're having to make a few adjustments uh, to find time in the schedules to allow us to continue producing the podcast on a regular basis. We're all committed to seeing the podcast move forward, uh, and so we will do what needs to be done uh, to make sure that the Engineering Commons uh, continues to exist. However, in the meantime, we have not been booking guests because we didn't know exactly uh, what time we could schedule our recording sessions. So if you've been in contact with us or made guest suggestions, uh, it's not that we haven't been interested. Uh, We're just trying to figure out how to make the schedule work uh, to allow the podcast to move forward. So in this episode, we talk about the electrical grid system, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. If not, please tell your friends that you are listening to the Amp Hour. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 116, The Grid, September 8th, 2016. So, Adam, are you currently using electricity to record this podcast tonight? Well, yes, I am. How are you using electricity? Well, I've got a, a, a gerbil wheel with a team of gerbils running around in a circle, running a little generator that uh, feeds uh, um, my laptop power supply, and uh, that runs my my fancy podcast recording uh, setup I have here. So you missed the op- you missed the option of claiming that you had some sort of uh, derivative of what it was. Who was the first computer inventor? Was it uh, uh, with the difference machine back in the eighteen hundreds? Babbage. Yes, Babbage's machine. There, it's a little bit big. It, it doesn't fit on my desk. Yeah, I've always thought the compression on the audio inputs for you know Babbage-based computers were a complete crap. <laughs> Well, all the clicking from things moving uh, kind yes. of muffles out the recording. Absolutely. So so what you're saying is that given the fact we're even recording this podcast, electricity is kind of important. Yeah, just a little. Just a little bit important? Just a little bit important. <laughs> At least useful. Well, and that's kind of why we're talking about the history and the makeup of the power grid in today's podcast. There's very few things in life that we both take for granted and need so immensely as electricity, you know, and it's more than just the nuisance when the storm knocks out the power system. It's when the hospital loses electricity and has to hop onto backup, has to hop on other generators, mm-hmm. you know, or when, you know, I'm trying to think of systems that aren't backed up. But effectively, everything, even the things that are backed up, require electricity to run. Uh, mm-hmm. The cell phone towers, the water pumps that make up your uh, municipal water system, while they may have nice diesel backup generators, they still require electricity. Mm-hmm. Yep. And is our dependence because of the transistor? No, it's because of the three-phase electric motor. Hmm. Well, I think about all the switching that goes on, you know, all the digital devices, and if we had... I mean, at one point you could, you designed a machine with, you know, mechanical switches mm-hmm. before the, before the advent of the transistor. So I'm trying to think of if we would have had some, some other means, you know, some other means of power uh, that we would have used. I mean, what are other options? Heat, steam. light, steam, compressed yeah, air, all, all of which are pretty difficult to, to transmit across country. Yes. I, I would, it's, it's pretty clear we wouldn't have the computational age we have without electricity. But even more so than that, you wouldn't have our modern society without electricity. I guess that's what I was hinting at. You wouldn't have much of the infrastructure that we depend upon without electricity. 
even the mm-hmm. things that look like they run on, you know, gasoline still at some point run on electricity and require electricity. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, so, and certainly a lot of the control systems for things are have electronic controls, even if they're if they're physically, you know, mechanical mm-hmm. devices or chemical devices, even. Yes. I we, we we occasionally get comments from listeners that say, "Well, you're too mechanical and too electrical, electronically focused." And and yes, we have. I'm a mechanical engineer. We've got uh, typically two mechanical or two electrical engineers. Uh, as as hosts in the podcast, so yes, we do have that bias. But uh, since we did recently have a chemical engineer on the show, I just wanted to throw in there. We remember there are chemical engineers and industrial engineers and maintenance engineers. It's difficult to make aluminum without electricity. Yep, uh, that's true. And actually, I'm pretty sure most. Well, I think we're planning on having a steel podcast, or do we already have it? I can't remember. No, we already had the steel podcast. Oh, that's right. It's all kind of blending together for me at this point. <laughs> um, uh, there was a huge article about how most steel production in the U.S. is now uh, using electric furnaces. Hmm. Okay. As opposed to what did they use in the past? I'm guessing Coke furnaces. Coke furnaces, right. Okay. We did a podcast about this. I, I seem to di- re- recall that in the distant past, yes. <laughs> so... I guess we should probably do a little bit of the history of electricity before we get to kind of the modern grid and its elements. Um, mm-hmm. I think we all know that Edison invented the light bulb, or at least his company did. What happened after that, I guess? What happened after Edison invented the light bulb? Yeah. Well, he he had to uh, he had to invent some place or some means by which he could distribute the electric electrical power because a light bulb without electrical power is not very useful. Uh, that's an interesting prerequisite. So, so there weren't electrical wires and generators running all over the place, you know, asking for the light bulb to be invented. <laughs> right. Right. That, 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 that's the problem with all, having a focus group, right? You get ask, ask a focus group, but they'll never ask for something they haven't seen before. Exactly. <laughs> And actually, maybe that's the perfect example of a technology push. Um, you know, society couldn't ask for electric incandescent lighting when they didn't know it existed, but and didn't have the means to use it. But uh, so, right. well, well, I, I was just watching a, a show the other day that was talking about in uh, um, houses built around the turn of the century. So that'd be as we were going from the 1800s into the 1900s they knew about uh, gas lamps and, and a number of homes inside the house would have gas lighting. Uh, but then this newfangled electricity was coming in. And so they had, they would build their house so they could switch to either one, just in case this electricity fad didn't really catch on. Is this like when they were building ethernet and, and fiber in the houses in 1999, 2000, you had to wire your house cause you never knew if Wi-Fi was going to, was going to make it work. Was Wi-Fi even a thing in 1999? Uh, I think so. My 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 memory's foggy, so fill in the comments because I'm uh, listeners. That is because I'm too lazy to look it up. <laughs> um, I actually had a, an older house at one point that had uh, knob and tube wiring, which uh, was one of the first types of residential electrical wiring, and there is absolutely nothing worse on this planet than trying to either rewire or um, deal with that system. You have to pay an electrician to come in, basically rip out everything and make it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what did you have to make make sense? Well, we completely rewired our house, so we paid an electrician to do that. But before that, if you had a, if you wanted to put in a light or something, you know, you don't have the, Nice color coded black and white wires with the green ground. Well, a there's no ground, mm-hmm. and um, you get you get situations where you know the light that was there, I guess, had a little bit of tension in it, or the wire had a little bit of tension, and as soon as you disconnect it from the light, it basically springs back up into the uh, the cloth that surrounds it. Mm, yes. 
and disappears. This was old enough uh, wire that had cloth insulation instead of. Oh yeah. 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 All nubbin tube was cloth. At least as far as I know. But uh, and in some ways, it's actually a little bit safer, or so the apologists have claimed, because line and neutral were actually run on different uh, studs. Typically, mm-hmm. okay, they weren't run together as as normal Romex would be, but it would it's so they only came together at either the switch or the uh, or the light. Okay, but it also became a mess in terms of uh, those systems became a mess in terms of making sure that you know each circuit was only loaded to a certain extent because you were never quite sure where the circuit began and ended. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Properly operated uh, knob and tube is is not inherently dangerous, except for the uh, I'll, I'll gloss over the safety grounding. But properly operating a knob and tube system is not a small task, mm-hmm. um, especially trying to mix and match um, with today's current standards. It, it just doesn't. It's not really possible. Is that safe, fair, safe to say? I think that's safe to say. I am not an electrician or fire safety expert, but uh, it seems to mesh with my experience with it, which is if you have it and you want to do any any kind of remodeling, it's just worth it to rip it all out. Yep. Um, okay, so so knob and tube wiring was sort of the standard during this, this early period of, of electricity. Is that right? As far as I can tell. Uh, but also, yeah, and, and, so were DC generators. So, <laughs> And for those who uh, don't know, knob and tube is called knob and tube because the wiring, you either had ceramic tubes through your studs or ceramic knobs um, mm-hmm. instead of the, the little staples you use nowadays to hold everything together. And every wire was individually run. Yep. And the wires were covered in a tarred cloth. Yes. Which is different than uh, some of the following wiring types, because cloth wiring um, stuck around for a long time, and I believe is still available in some... I know it's still available for some applications today. Yes. I actually Mm -hmm. just received a transformer with some cloth insulation on it. Hmm. So so I'm guessing this this knob and tube wiring probably doesn't meet code anymore? Uh, As long as you don't do anything to it. So it's okay for existing. I mean, it's grandfathered in, but if you were going to build a new house, you would. Uh, it probably wouldn't meet code. I don't think you could buy it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. However, I'm sure there's some steampunk home builder that will do it for you. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to consult an electrician uh, whether it would meet uh, current NEC code, but I kind of oh, doubt it. I don't think it, the NEC. I don't think the NEC mentions. Or maybe it does. I would be shocked if it actually mentioned new installations of that stuff, particularly because it doesn't have an earth ground. Mm, okay. But uh, I guess All right, so- g- getting back to the grid that that stuff hooks up to. <laughs> right. Um, so the very first generation and distribution system was the Pearl Street Power Generation in New York City uh, in 1882. And it provided power to a whopping 82 customers. Right. Gosh, I really doubt that plant made money. Um, yeah. And I believe it was DC. So this was an Edison-owned plant. I believe, Actually, I believe he was operating or licensing the plants that he built in order to run his uh, electricity. Mm-hmm. So companies that needed the electricity would build their own generating plant it wasn't there was a utility to do that you basically had to have your own utility plant in order to provide electricity for your factory exactly um and i don't know that a lot of these were for factories i think a lot of them were for residential applications and and so was this all edison or was this i guess uh, westinghouse was the the other competitor in in all this so the the rollout of the First residential systems, as the story is usually told, typically only talks about Edison. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, from my recollection, the uh, 
you know, Westinghouse clearly is his competitor in the war of the currents really only entered the fray when it came to large installations and distribution. Um, as, as far as I'm aware, the seminal moment for, uh, uh, for Westinghouse was getting the contract for the Niagara Falls powerhouse. Okay. Um, okay. So, so what was, so in the, in the early days though, was, you know, this first, uh, Pearl street power station, was that an Edison project or was that somebody else? I'm pretty sure that's an Edison project. Okay. And, and as such, it was probably uh, DC as opposed to AC cause he was the big proponent of, of DC current. Yes. And so, Obviously, we've gone to AC in these days. What is what was D- Edison's thinking? Uh, just to confirm, it was the Edison Illuminating Company, which was okay. headed by Thomas Edison. Of um, course, built and operated the plant. Okay. Um, getting back to what was your question? I'm sorry, I missed that. So, and and so, why was Edison such a proponent of direct current when it's it seems here today we know that that most of our electrical grids are AC. So I think that's a difficult question to, at least with my level of knowledge about the subject, um, it's difficult to answer that question because so much of the answers that get floated around have to do with the propaganda that both West, you know, propaganda and counter propaganda for West put out by Westinghouse and Edison, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you have an inferior technology that doesn't necessarily or, or superior technology doesn't preclude you from defaming and, you know, another person's technology and touting your own, finding right. advantages where there may or may not be one. Right. Um, so you're, you're saying flame wars did not start with Twitter. No, the, the, I'm sure flame wars don't even, <laughs> they at least predate the British empire. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, wasn't the Treaty of, of Westphalia just one giant flame war against borderless countries and duchies? Um, anyways, the uh, I don't have a good f- – I think it was a simpler technology, and it was mm-hmm. one that Edison clearly built his uh, portfolio around. Right. That it also had some very clear disadvantages to Westinghouse's applications. Right. Um and so do you, do you know what the method of, of power generation was at this early plant? Was it, was it all steam? Was it, how, uh, how are they generating the electricity? Uh, it does. The reference on the Pearl Street plant does say it was a steam generator. Okay. Um, uh, I'm looking for what kind of, it was a 175 horsepower, 700 RPM. Uh, generator. I'm looking for what type of generator. I believe it's a dynamo. Okay. Yes. So it looks like much of Edison's work was using a dynamo, which I think goes back to some of the very first mechanical to electrical, many, if not all of the very first uh, mechanical to electrical conversion devices. Uh, were dynamos. Right. So so a dynamo uh, is an electrical generator that produces direct current. Mm -hmm. Uh, And how how does it do that? Well, (laughs) moving fluxes. So you're either moving a a permanent magnet or an electromagnet. I think many of these early designs were were using uh, permanent, uh, potentially spinning permanent magnets, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were also using electric magnets. I'm trying to find some, I hate doing research on the fly, but it's not a question I thought I'd be asked. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I couldn't, f- I can't find any information as to ex- the details on Edison's dynamo. Okay. I may have to, we may have to do that for another show. <laughs> the, the, these, these, uh, Tutorial podcasts are becoming a, a uh, rabbit hole, right? We we uh, yes. talk about the electric vehicle, which means we need to talk about the grid, and we talk about the grid. Now we need to talk about dynamos. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, and we probably talked way more about DC than we should. I mean, while Edison was definitely a champion 
And uh, for my for my recollection, much of what Edison did beyond uh, the obvious popularizing of the incandescent light invention and popularizing the incandescent light bulb, he set a precedent in terms of, you know, tearing up a street to put in electrical wire. Like that's something we kind of take for granted. But that's Edison made that a thing that electricity is infrastructure. Right. Um, and also getting people to pay for that. That's, uh, I believe that's something that could easily be credited to Edison, uh, even, even though DC failed. Now, his, I've also heard, and I don't know if this is still true. It was true in the late nineties, mm-hmm. but there are a few buildings in New York that still have DC circuits. Wow. I, you know, I, I'm sure they're parallel to AC systems. Right. But uh, they do exist. Some of these things didn't quite go away as quickly as you think. Right. Well, we're, also, we're always sort of tied to history. I was just uh, explaining in class this past week uh, the concept, uh, concept of full-scale deflection. Uh, and it's hard to explain to students who have never seen an analog meter what full-scale deflection is supposed to mean. But if you look in the spec sheets, a lot of times it has, you know, some, you know, uh, hysteresis or nonlinearity as a percentage of FSD. Uh, so they need to know what that is. But, uh, uh, you know, they've only seen digital readouts. So it's a little hard to explain what, what was meant by full-scale uh, deflection. And I, I explained to them that sometimes we're tied to history. You know, whatever the, uh, whatever the evolution of the concept was, we have to, uh, we have to live with that. So it it looks like the last DC there was actually a program uh, put put it done by Con Ed to replace the last DC systems, and it started in 1998. Wow! Uh, by 2006, only 60 remained. Hmm. So so I guess this goes into the engineering maxim that if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, but even like it's just it's just like software. If you build it, that means you're going to have to support it, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, and a, a certain amount of it is just like Brian, uh, <clears throat> Brian's experience with knob and tube. You got the DC system; it's working. Now I got to pay an electrician to come in and rewire the whole building. Yep, that's a pain in the butt. <laughs> but I suppose if you're only running lighting off those circuits, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, pretty quickly, uh, you know, there was this period known as, I believe, the War of the Currents. Uh, AC currents and DC currents uh, primarily fought between uh, Westinghouse and Ed- Edison in their respective companies. Uh, I can't remember if General Electric, if Edison's company was known as General Electric at that point, but I'm pretty sure it became General Electric. Yeah. Um, mm hmm. We'll spare our listeners the suspense, polyphase AC1. <laughs> and the primary reason for that, you know, should seem obvious that it's way easier to transform voltages uh, and move around uh, large amounts of power with the technology that was available in the 1800s using polyphase systems, you know. Transformers are very easy, uh, provide a very easy means to move from high voltage to low voltage and also to load share across a grid. And I believe the more important invention, even, even, well, I guess as important compared to the electric light would be the three phase induction motor, which I think at this point dominates or even early on dominated the, uh, uh, the motor market or the electrical to mechanical market to the point that DC motor, uh, you know, commutated DC motors were gen- generally only used in low voltage applications. So Brian, uh, you step back and explain why AC is obvious and so much better than DC. I mean, I can take and get a, uh, all sorts of voltage regulators and adjust the voltages and currents. Why couldn't they do that back then? Well, you have the advantages of modern power semiconductors. 
which is what you're getting at. Um, modern voltage regulators are basically switch, uh, are switching devices that move very quickly, uh, much faster than you could move a mechanical switch or even a tube can, if you consider the fact that those hadn't even been invented at the time. I'm trying to think. Was that entirely true? Cathode ray tube. When was that invented? Ah. They weren't uh, tubes as power devices weren't used until substantially later. So uh, neglecting the fact it would be silly to actually do grid work with a tube. Um, I do know that there were some crazy, uh, I think they were used for rectification. I think there were AC to DC systems that used giant mercury tubes. Mm. I've seen videos of these systems that I believe still operate or they did even recently where they're giant, you know, cauldrons of mercury and, you know, they vaporize the mercury and, you know, it's, it is a tube in effect and it's working as a rectifier, almost like a, or it is working as a diode or a diode array to transform mains, uh, scale voltage into AC voltage into DC for locomotive or uh, light rail applications. Okay. But, uh, well, I see it's also known as a mercury arc valve. Yes. Or mercury vapor rectifier uh, for yeah. converting high voltage or high current AC into DC. <laughs> Can you see a picture of it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, we'll put it, uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, but does it, does it look appropriately terrifying? It has a, a, a neat blue glow to it and, and big tubes. It looks, yeah, it looks a little scary. <laughs> so um, back to Adam's question. When you want to move current or when you want to move power over long distances, you ultimately just get back to Ohm's law. Voltage times current equals power. You, If you want to move a ton of power, you can either make it a, you know, if you keep the voltage steady, you can make it a ton of current, or if you keep the current steady, you can make it a ton of voltage uh, due to the multiplicative relationship. Mm -hmm. Current, as we know, causes loss. Current heats up things. And if you can maintain a low amount of current uh, and increase the voltage significantly, you can transmit a tremendous amount of power while minimizing your loss. Okay. And so if, say, you want to move electricity from upstate New York near Niagara Falls down to New York City, the best way to do that is at extremely high voltages. And at that period you really couldn't do it with DC. DC generators needed to be located very close to their end user. And actually, I think Edison's model effectively would have a generator on every block. That was the kind of system you were looking at. Wow. So the polyphase system will use transformers to boost uh, the polyphase ACs, uh, AC power up to thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of volts in order to send kilowatts and megawatts with a power with relatively low current and thus relatively low losses. Mm -hmm. so, so let me ask, so uh, for, uh, you know, the mechanical type like I am, uh, you know, AC was sort of Okay, it wasn't DC. You know, DC was constant. AC was going up and down. You know, you had a sinusoid. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned polyphase. So what's the what's the key to the difference between just a single line that you know reference to ground? You know, you have a fixed ground and you've got a signal that goes up and down, and and this polyphase concept. Okay, so uh, the power that comes into your house, for the most part which is a split phase system in the U S I believe Europe is just a line neutral system. Um, I wish I had looked that up anyways. Uh, in the U S you have, as we all know, a line and a neutral, a supply and a return. You have a signal that is varying with 120 volts in the U S 
uh, RMS, 230 volts in Europe, um, at either 50 or 60 hertz relative to a neutral. Mm-hmm. A polyphase system, you know, three-phase typically, uh, you have three lines that are 120 degrees separated from each other. Okay. And you are conducting from phase to other phase, depending upon the configuration, but typically. And the genius behind this is it makes the neutral or the return path almost irrelevant. And so you, it almost seems like magic. So if you think about the fact that you require one wire to send out 60 Hertz at a given high voltage, you would think that correspondingly you'd need another wire coming back, closing the circuit. Mm -hmm. But a three phase system sends out three live wires and because they're conducting relative to each other, you don't really need a return wire coming back. There is one kind of, um, it's using the earth as a return line for any stray, uh, charge that needs to be returned, any imbalance in the system that needs to be, uh, conducted back to the system, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have a true return network. Okay. So you uh, effectively, you cut your losses in half. Cool. So, so when I see, when I see wires, you know, strung across the, uh, uh, you know, the landscape, obviously from, from uh, station to station, from power station to power station is, is that what I'm seeing? I'm seeing, are they in groups of three? Yes. Typically. Okay. Okay. And they're, and they're using this, this idea that they're each 120 degrees out of phase. Yep. And so, and so the beauty of that is that if I understand correctly, that, that, from wherever the generation station is, uh, the power is actually going down the line to the other station. And because not much is coming through the return line, uh, you're actually, you're, you're effective in transmitting power to someplace else as opposed to just sort of uh, using up half of it going out and half of it coming back. Exactly. Cool. That is kind of magic. Well, you're essentially on one line, you're pushing and then you're pulling on the other two lines and then you switch to another one you're mm-hmm. pushing on and then you pull on the other lines I mean, and it's it, because it's continuously changing on all three lines, but you're essentially pushing power on all, or pushing or pulling on all three lines at the same time. So you don't need to return. You're returning on your exactly. other lines. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and playing with one of the cool things about AC power is if you can watch your phases, you can get rid of that, that return. And even in a, um, a system very similar to a residential system, it's possible to use um, the two uh, opposite phases, even in a, a, a neutral reference system, to um, basically ignore your return line. Mm-hmm. You can. And so that's where the U.S. split phase system, and I don't know if there's a if there is a European equivalent to it. I don't think there is. Um, and this kind of gets to the arbitrariness of the values that were chosen. Um, in the U S the AC is the AC signal coming out of your wall is at 120 volts RMS. Mm-hmm. I believe it was actually the standard was upped from 110 at one point in the past in Europe uses 230. Well, okay. the same principle that, that, causes you to go to higher voltages on transmission line also applies to residential power, right? Sure. So if you can, if you can run a device at 230 volts, it's effectively dropping half as much current across the distribution network. So right. you can use, you know, lower gauge wires cause you're not pushing as much current. Right. It's more efficient. But in the U.S., for whatever reason, probably getting back to choices that were made by Edison in terms of how they size light bulbs, how uh, I, I, I actually don't know the history of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know we we started with one ten, and later they realized you know it it'd be really awesome to be running our our homes at higher voltages, so you have a 90 degree split phase system where you have two lines going to each house 
obviously each split by 90 degrees. I believe it's 90 degrees. It's one of these things that I would say in at a bar easily, and though as soon as I say it and I'm being recorded, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's 180. Is it 180? Uh, it, it depends a little. Your, your typical would be 180 out of phase. Exactly out of phase. I always thought it was 90, but you're probably right. Anyways, your your 220 volt lines relative to neutral can give you a 240, 240 volt system. And in the U.S., that's typically used to run electric stoves, uh, uh, electric uh, dryers and washers, that kind of thing. Things that run big motors and thus require a ton of power. I'm going to make a correction there. It's uh, 240 volts relative to each other. Yep. Not relative to neutral. Exactly. So if you were to if you were to stick a multimeter on on each line relative to ground, because the ground in each house is ultimately tied back to the to the neutral. Actually, yes, and that's another really crazy thing that it you know it is a true polyphase system when it comes off of your local transformer. <laughs> they just use the ground line, the safety ground, effectively as a current return network. Um. So it. You know, if, if we're getting from the apocryphal area, era, Westinghouse wins, polyphase wins, and you get the you get the rollout of electricity in the U.S. and then in Europe uh, and the rest of the world, uh, primarily based on the West on the standards that Westinghouse developed. Mm-hmm. Or at least Europe then adapted. You know, and, and there's one other thing that we didn't really touch on, and hopefully you can speak to this a little better than I can, Brian. We talk about the three-phase induction motor, but what, you know, I, I know I we just said I don't have three-phase in my house, but I can plug uh, a fan into my outlet and it works. So, and I know it's not a three-phase induction motor. What gives? I believe you can have a single phase AC induction motor. I don't. Be, I, I don't believe it is a commutated system. Um, yep. So why, why is the three phase induction motor so great? A three phase induction motor is amazing because uh, let's say you want to run something at a particular speed. It's inherently frequency. Ma- the frequency of the rotation is derived from the. I believe it is derived from the 60 hertz uh, AC sine wave applied to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also believe that it's it's primarily it, its utility as opposed to DC brush commutated systems is that it doesn't have an, it doesn't have an inherent wear point. You know? Oh, because because it's induction. Yes. Okay. Sorry, it doesn't have a inherent electrical wear point. You know, everything's got bearings and bearings wear out. But if you have a high current commutated DC system, you do have brushes that are basically scraping across and arcing on um, on metal, basically jumping from pushing no current to pushing a ton of current. It's almost a dead short. Um, mm-hmm. It depends on the reactivity of the uh, of the motor, but you know it's a it's a more violent system. It's a more it's a and inherently commu, uh, commutator to wear out. They are a a uh, consumable product in any DC motor, mm-hmm. or sorry, in any brushed DC motor, I should say. Right. Well, and even in an AC induction motor, a single phase induction motor, you've got, because you only have the one phase, you're going back and forth. Um, and, and it's, you're, it's not smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a three phase, uh, I did a little Google search, you know, three phase induction motors, um, you got a high starting torque because you've always got some voltage across the phase. You, you don't have, never have a zero crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've always got some torque to start, um, and it's, they're smoother. Um, so they work good for a lot of industrial applications, um, large air compress, uh, air compressors, 
large air handlers and air conditioning units, industrial motors for manufacturing, and um, a lot of those things that, you know, we think our houses are the one things that drive industry. No, nah, the Ford plant is the one that's going to drive the the, uh, the power company to do something. Yes. So what is the difference between an induction motor and a synchronous motor? I do not know. <laughs> I have almost zero background in, motor, in motors, unfortunately. Okay. Well, so I, I, I mentioned just because I know that, that the synchronous motor was there were a lot of clocks in the U.S. that were, you know, in the 30s were, you know, basically synchronous motors that they turned at the speed of the frequency of the AC that was driving them. So uh, it was very important for all the uh, power generation companies to produce their electricity at exactly 60 hertz because otherwise the clocks would start getting going uh, ahead, you know, would lose time or gain time if if they didn't provide power at the proper frequency. Well, and that's where you get to grid stability. Um, it's more than just important that companies produce at exactly 60 hertz. They have to produce at exactly 60 hertz relative to each other. Uh, the consequences of which are... <laughs> Are catastrophic. <laughs> so when you when you say relative to each other, so we're talking like one power plant against another. Exactly, all the power plants in any in any interconnected grid system are all functioning synchronously. So so the peak they all reach the peak of their sinusoidal wave at the same time. Exactly. And so any generation asset that is joining the grid or supplying power has to be synchronized to the system. I have heard apocryphal stories about somehow systems were mess were not synchronized and, you know, knife, uh, you know, uh, were somehow connected into the grid system and the generators literally ripped out of their moorings. Um, because the torques are so insane. I have, I, I actually looked to see if I could find any cases, uh, of that happening. Um, I couldn't find any verified cases of it happening, but it's conceivable that it would be that violent because they were, when they came online, they were out of phase. Yep. Wow. Well, and, uh, a generator and a motor are, Almost the exact same same thing. thing. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. One you're pumping power in, the other you're pulling power out of. Well, not one you're pumping electricity in, one you're pulling electricity out of. So, yeah, you you backfeed it and it's trying to run the other direction. Well, it's yes. And another way of saying that is, you know, whether you're applying power or you're pulling power out of a generator, you're applying a torque. Mm -hmm. And. The net uh, the net flow is proportional to, to the torque, and if the net flow is a dead short, that's one hell of a torque. Right. So the the torque is proportional to the armature current, and if yep. you have a short, there's a lot of current. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a potential demonstration about this, you know, and and I guess the general interconnectedness of the grid and how electricity comes to your house was a video that I showed Jeff and I believe Adam last week, which was, um, it was this, uh, TV pickup event that happens in the UK where a popular TV show, the EastEnders completes and supposedly everyone goes and turns on their tea kettle. And it's one of the few situations in the world where you have a, very predictable, massive spike in electrical consumption. I guess the American equivalent of that is the massive flush that happens during the first <laughs> commercial of the Super Bowl or during halftime in the Super mm-hmm. Bowl and water companies right. have to keep up. Right. Um, but what's cool about this is it demonstrates how uh, utilities manage increases and decreases in uh, loads on the grid. And it's something that I think we take for granted when we use it. You know, you've got 120 
in the U.S., 120 volts coming out of sockets all around you. And when you plug in something, you know, assuming that you didn't plug in something that was consuming more power than your little local wires could handle and were breakered to, you don't think about what that does to the larger system. Whereas if you have like a little microgrid, like, you know, your USB power supply or something like that, you're acutely aware as to how much each additional device that you're putting on your USB nodes are consuming. You know, you could, like if you put an iPad on a really small USB charger, that thing's going to get hot and you're going to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the interesting thing about watching this video is how closely they pay attention to the frequency in the system. That changes in the frequency in the system represent a global proxy for uh, the amount of power that's available or the amount of power that is being pulled out of the entire network. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it the difference between the amount put in and the amount pulled out? That's potentially a way to look at it. So if the system is stable, if the inputs match the outputs, the frequency will be stable. If you know, if you think about if the system was a single generator, if you pulled more current out than in, or the net torque uh, was uh, the net torque in or out was greater than net torque in, the frequency will drop. You'll basically be slowing down the turbine. Well, since all the systems are are synchronized the entire frequency of the system slows down until you add additional power resources. And that's exactly what they're doing. And you can see how they're balancing loads being turned on and loads being in, or sorry, generation assets and transmission assets being turned on um, as this power surge happens and then being shut off as the additional power isn't needed because if there's more power being put in the system, the frequency will also increase against the standard. Mm-hmm. So if if a power generation plant slows, it's, it's supposed to be at 60 hertz and it slows to 58 hertz, is the, rest of this, is the rest of the grid slowing to that same frequency or is it just causing uh, wear on all the, all the equipment because you have some of the system is operating at 60 Hertz and some of it's operating at 58. Uh, I don't believe you're actually allowed. I don't think, I don't, I don't believe the system will tolerate the, a significant discrepancy in the frequency over even long distances. Hmm. Okay. Cause keep in mind uh, a difference in frequency effectively means power has to move from one place to another. Right. And if you think about it, eventually it's going to be a short. Exactly. It'll it'll take a couple of cycles for it to get there, but yes, I, I gather that. But it, but at some point, not everything can be perfectly synchronized. At some point, if something if if ideal is sixty, then somebody's at fifty nine point nine nine nine. There's some mm-hmm. there's there has to be some tolerance of frequency difference. But that's where it gets back to my initial comment about, a, you know, if you were to switch in a generator while it's being out of phase, mm-hmm. it would rip it out of its moorings. <laughs> right. It's inherently self-synchronizing. At least large rotational spinning masses. <laughs> okay. It, it gets a little bit different when you have different grid supplies that don't necessarily have that. But So... Um, so- Brian, maybe it'd help if you could explain, you know, how does that actually work when they, let's assume some sort of steam generation, if it's nuclear or um, gas or um, coal or even, um, um, well, any of our, any of the big rotational generation methods, how how does that synchronize? They just turn it on, the thing start, the generator starts spinning and, and you hope that you get them lined up or... I actually do not know that. That is, we would have to have somebody who works for a utility come on and talk about that. Okay. Um, my assumption would be, <laughs> I actually was thinking about that ahead of time and looking at how they work. I'm almost wondering if you can treat them as an electric motor 
when they're first turning on, but that probably wouldn't work. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they bring it, how they synchronize it as they're spooling the thing up. Um, I, I do know that there are candle house generation assets that when the entire power grid goes down are used to synchronize. So, you know, in, in the area we are, there is a particular hydroelectric plant, which can be used to synchronize and bring up the entire system. You know, if you were to effectively have to bring it up from zero, as has happened with really large scale losses of powers, you know, in some of the seminal blackout events. And what was the name you said? Candle House? Candle I, don't, I don't think they would call them that, but that's something that, you know, a novice would call them. Something that is small enough and connected enough asset that can be used to bring a regional grid back up into synchronicity. Okay. Or synchronization. So you have these, you know, with uh, for miles across the country from one another, you have these plants that are operating in synchronicity with one another, mm-hmm. uh, which forms, I guess we could say, a grid. So in a large country like the United States, is, that, is it all just one giant grid? Uh, no. And so something Carmen could talk about, and I didn't look a lot into it. There, there are regional divisions. Uh, east, west, east, west, and Texas. <laughs> okay, Texas gets its own grid. Evidently, mm-hmm. uh, this was on a today I learned, and actually, it's funny. I know more about that than I do. I know more based on that discussion than I do based on our <laughs> <laughs> our, our our resources, our, our crack research. Yeah, it was uh, evidently that was set up during World War II as a means to. Isolate key industri- or, uh, energy production and industrial production assets in Texas in case there was sabotage. Hmm. Or at least that's the way it was explained in one of the Reddit threads. Uh, so somebody couldn't sabotage, you know, the Northeast and have it affect critical production centers in in Texas. Interesting. And it's I believe it's the current setup is a legacy of those laws, those federal laws. Um, but there are interconnects between the two. I'm pretty sure between all the, between all the major systems. Right. So I remember, I don't know. It's, it's like a, at this point it's probably a decade ago, eight years. I'm trying to think whether it was before or after nine 11, but there seemed to be a series of, of crises on the East coast where, uh, the power grid started to go down, and and you had you know some place in was it around Cleveland? Yeah, there was. Went, a, I believe it was a short to there was a. If I remember correctly, it was unshorted vegetate or untrimmed vegetation shorting transmission lines to ground. <laughs> okay, and and so, do you have any sense of how that you know that problem propagates through the grid? I have a vague recollection. This was explained in detail to me about. You know, eight years ago. So now I got to see how well I can remember. Um, a big problem with that ended up being the islanding of various uh, transmission and and uh, load paths. So, from my understanding, or the way, at least the way it was explained to me, you have people that are looking at the various interconnection points between, let's just say, major met- metropolitan areas or major load areas and they have the ability to say okay you know i'm supplying power i'm in city a and i'm supplying power into city b and city b you know is now consuming more than i can supply Mm -hmm. uh i can hit a switch and cut them off and island them or i can isolate an area where you where we have a known power fault and this would it, this would typically be done inside of a a grid where like you know Con Ed might say well New York City is going to go down but you know the rest of the state is going to stay up mm-hmm. and the people who are running those switches at the time 
had a lot of incentive not to actually hit the switch. Okay. Um, so again, this is as it was explained to me. <laughs> sure. I, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. That effectively to hit the switch was to be fired. Yeah. You know? mm. Because you're cutting off power, you know, your millions of dollars an hour are effectively going through that switch and to cut and to hit the switch means that no money is being generated. Right. And so people didn't could see the problems happening and were reluctant to cut people off. Were reluctant to island people. And thus the the failures propagated uh, through the grid eventually taking down pretty much the entire east coast or northeast mm -hmm. interesting so so there was a disconnect mechanism but everybody was afraid to or at least all the people acting at that point in time were afraid to push the switch uh, push yes. the button so to speak yep interesting okay all right so uh we talked a couple of episodes ago about the the electric car are there are there any interesting connections between the you know the generation of electricity and uh, how it relates to electric cars well i mean i can't remember if we discussed it. it it if when people talk about the the ecological value of electric cars they cannot decouple that from the generation assets that are being used to supply the electricity mm -hmm. i think we did talk about this we did, yeah, we did. So an electric car in California will use significantly less, will produce significantly less CO2 or equivalent CO2 per mile driven when compared to an electric car charged in West Virginia, which is mostly coal. Mm -hmm. But uh, if as electric cars are adopted, it does represent some interesting challenges for the electric grid. And I think some people believe there are opportunities. I don't really buy their predictions for what will happen. Uh, for example, some people like to believe that electric cars will represent bulk storage mm -hmm. um, because the power conversion circuits to charge batteries can easily be designed to move in both directions. You know, there are people who believe that electric cars will be used to basically grid level with alternative energy. I, as an, as somebody who drives a hybrid electric vehicle, I would not be very stoked about finding out that half the time I thought it was charging, it was actually sending power back into the grid. <laughs> right, right. And we did talk a little bit on that episode about the fact that the, uh, the problem is the car is in the garage at the wrong hour uh, to meet the demand that during yeah. the, during the day when all the demand is high, your, your car isn't there to su uh, supply power. And yeah. at night when it is there, uh, nobody, nobody else needs it. So that'd be the time to charge up the battery. Now it does. One thing we have not talked about at all in this episode is kind of the nature of the grid in terms of generation assets when they come online uh, load profiles. Electric cars do actually provide an interesting load profile, assuming that people go home and plug them in at night. Mm -hmm. um, because they represent a substantial load in off-peak times. Uh, and one of the things the power companies like to do is have fairly consistent power delivery over the entire day. I mean, the ideal scenario for the utility would be, you know, power consumption and and uh, generation change not at all. <laughs> right. You know, the reality is we turn off our lights at night. We don't need as much air conditioning. The factories aren't running, et cetera, et cetera. But if the cars are charging, that represents a fairly excellent destination for baseload power. Um, so there are some benefits to that. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the, the cars are there and, uh, will, will consume power at night, which is, is what the company's like. Mm -hmm. I've often heard it said that, uh, uh, municipal lighting was just, was pushed 
uh, the conspiracy theory is that municipal lighting was pushed uh, by the electric company so that they could find a source of uh, load at night. You know, well, you got to light those streets because, you know, they'd be unsafe, says the electric company that's looking for somebody to buy electricity at two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and and I'm starting to uh, just what went through my head is I can see with the with hydroelectric plants how you can cut off streams of water into the into the turbines in order to, you know, turn on or turn off to add or subtract capacity to that. I'm I'm curious how that's done with a coal power plant. You know, you're you're usually using coal to produce steam, and all I can figure is you must you must uh, shunt the steam out of the out of the uh, out of the flow path when you want less less power produced. The answer is not quickly. <laughs> okay. I think it's. Uh, I think they can. They can pull more, you know, they do have wiggle room. Coal and nuclear both both have relatively decent short-term wiggle room, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe both kinds of plants actually take really long, uh, have really long startup times. Um, and they're, that's why both of those plants are typically used for baseload generation assets. Okay. You know. Just something that's going to come on and you're going to leave on for days or weeks. Right. Um, I've also vaguely remember being told that coal, one of the big things with big boiler-driven coal plants is you don't want to bring them up too fast because you might break them. You might you know, crack the boilers by uh, changing the temperature too quickly. Again, that might be apocryphal. I can't remember if that's true. Hmm. That's interesting. But one way that they – are able to load follower. The, a lot of the operational reserves are met is with uh, uh, hydro and with natural gas. So natural gas, you can actually spool up very quickly, or at least one type of natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first stage in most natural gas generation assets is is a jet engine. You know. Or at least, you know, a, a facsimile of a jet engine that doesn't need to fly. Right. And, uh, you know, those can come up very fast, and the, but they're not terribly efficient. Mm-hmm. And then you can couple those to, you know, you get combined cycle systems that take the outputs of those uh, natural gas jet turbines or nat- natural gas turbines and then use them to boil water for a combined cycle system for additional uh, efficiencies. Right. So something that is, so obviously uh, coal, nuclear, you've got some, you know, ideally you have some uh, stability in the demand. I'm guessing then that something that is transient like wind power, that just whenever whenever the wind happens to be blowing, that you add that into the grid and uh, cut back on the, on the other forms of generation? Typically. Um, I mean, you don't cut back in your baseload. Or, actually, I have seen generation profiles from Germany. It looks like they do spool up and spool down some types of coal pretty quickly. I don't think that's done with nuclear very readily. But, uh, okay. Yes. So, So, the interesting thing about wind, though, is it's periodic, but it's also it doesn't change as rapidly as you'd think. You know, it isn't the same thing as say a, let's say you had a coal plant that had a fault, had an electrical fault or a a transformer fault and dropped offline, Mm -hmm. you know, where you lose power in seconds. Um, Wind turbines will lose power in, you know, tens of minutes and hours they'll kind of gracefully come up and come down that matches up really well with, you know, uh, with non-spinning, uh, reserves like natural gas plants. Hmm. Okay. Which is why people who I, T Boone tip Pickens was, was a famous energy entrepreneur in the U S um, 
was pushing a electrical grid based on natural gas and wind turbines for that very reason. And I would also go so far as to say that, particularly in the U.S., the growth in natural gas has been a huge enabler for the uh, alternative energy markets. Right. And you said uh, T. Boone Pickens was. He is still with us. When I say was, I don't know that he is actively pushing that plan with us, that that plan for right. going entirely natural gas. And mind you, he wanted to sell natural gas. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think he was necessarily, I don't think he really gave a crap about wind. <laughs> okay. We'll tell you what, we've sort of uh, dabbled around the edges here of our uh, of our knowledge about power generation, but it's certainly an interesting uh, area where there's all sorts of little bits of uh, various types of engineering that have to go into uh, generating the grid. Everything from those who have to determine the stresses on the uh, on the towers that hold the wires to the uh, uh, to the generation plants to the uh, the transformers to the, all the way down to the uh, the appliances in our homes that uh, make use of that power. And uh, none of us are actually uh, experts in this area. Perhaps we have a listener out there somewhere who who is an expert in this area, would like to come on and join us and, and uh, fill in the gaps a little bit. Yes, that would be awesome. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, we're not too afraid of uh, admitting our uh, our limited knowledge in certain areas. That's one of the great things about engineering is is it, it covers such a vast area, uh, and uh, each of us uh, becomes an expert in our own little area of, uh, uh, in our own little realm of expertise. And so if, if you are one of those people that knows a lot about the grid, uh, please let us know. We'd be happy to have you come on and, and uh, share your background and your story and your, your knowledge with us. All right. So what do you say, guys? You, uh, you want to call this the end of an episode? Yeah, it's as good a place as any to end. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we will, uh, we will call it a, uh, an episode and, uh, perhaps even Carmen will be back the next time. Maybe we'll have all four of us at once the next time. It'll be good. It's been a little while. It's, it's been at least a, a couple of episodes. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks and we'll do another episode of the engineering commons. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye guys. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>